So, you know, with all of this uh, rate tightening we're seeing now, we're going to see yield curve inversion again. We already saw it recently, depending on what uh, spreads you're looking at. And, you know, that's a hint that we're going to get a recession. And it works a lot more often than not. And so, you know, the spread between the 10-year and two-year, which is the most popular or most quoted anyway, yield curve spread is really tight. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Rob McLister. He's the founder of several companies in the mortgage space, one of the smartest mortgage brokers I know. And I always joke when I talk to Rob or read anything that he's written, I feel like my IQ goes up a little bit. But then, of course, it just drops back down pretty quick after. But So he created a website called Canadian Mortgage Trends, which was for a long time the premier site for Canadian mortgage news. He sold that to Mortgage Professionals Canada and started another company called RateSpy. And so that was a site that allowed people to go and see the different rates on all the different sites. He sold that to rates.com and built a company called Intellimortgage and sold that. And so now he has a service called MortgageLogic.News and it's basically probably the best newsletter. If you're gonna read one thing a week, it's the most well-researched, it's extremely well done, and it'll help you be a smarter mortgage broker. You can go check that out at mortgagelogic.news. And I'm a subscriber, and I think it's fantastic. And he also writes for the Globe and Mail. Rob's the kind of guy, I'm going to get him back on periodically just because he's so in tune with the market and interest rates. And so today we talk about interest rates, why term selection and amortization are critically important when you're talking about mortgages. I also ask him what are the key numbers he watches so what does he actually look for? I always think of it like, what's the light on the dash of the car? And what do they actually mean? So I explained to Rob, I'm like, tell me like I'm 10 so I can understand this stuff. And then we talk about supply issues and housing. And he's got some creative ideas on solving it, actually, which I'd never heard before. Of all the people that I've asked this question to, his answer surprised me. And I also thought it was actually fairly clever. So check out mortgagelogic.news if you want to increase your mortgage IQ. On the Ask the Expert segment today, I have Ben McCabe from Bloom Finance. And we talk about five reasons they may decline a reverse mortgage file. I personally think as we see inflations driving the cost of goods up, I think reverse mortgages are going to be a massive, massive opportunity in the next 18 to 24 months. And before we jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform designed specifically for Canadian mortgage brokers. It's very easy to use for borrowers and brokers. It's got some really cool features, smart docs. So as the client's filling with the app, it knows if you're self-employed, what kind of documents to ask for. It's got smart submission notes. So it takes the key data from the application, puts it in the submission notes, because if you've ever sat on the other side of the screen where the lender actually, what they see and what you see, they look totally different. Every Every lender does it differently, so it makes it helpful for them. And finally, it's connected to Lender Spotlight, which means you can search all the rates, all the guidelines. And even before, once you select that lender, you go hit submit. It says, hey, don't forget these guidelines. Do you check the boxes? It helps you save time and avoid declines. Check them out at lendescom slash Finmo to book a free demo. Check out this conversation that I have with Rob. Hey, Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm fantastic, man. So I've known you for a long time now, and you have quite the history of creating cool things in the mortgage space, which we're going to get to. But maybe just tell me a little bit about yourself. What were you doing before you got into mortgages? Maybe start there, and then we'll move very quickly up to what's kind of been happening in the last decade. <laughs> All right, start from the beginning. Started off in Canada, born in Toronto, lived in Windsor for a bit, moved to Detroit, lived in uh, Detroit for a while, moved back to Windsor, did some time in Las Vegas, UNLV, went to uh, Michigan, get an undergrad in finance, 
got a job out of Michigan trading stocks, did that for about 11 years, built a trading platform and some other fun stuff, sold that. We had a system that was working really, really well in the stock market. And all of a sudden it stopped working. You know, they came in with decimals and we used to trade fractions where the spreads are wider, you make more money. The computers came in. So long story short, the thing I was doing wasn't making as much money. It wasn't as fun. So we got into mortgages because we got a, a mortgage on a house in Windsor and the experience was horrendous. And I talked to my wife, Melanie, I'm like, you got to get into mortgages. There's a lot of opportunity here because it seems like based on my representative sample of one broker that a lot of people don't know what they're doing. So she got into it. She did really well, built up the company, started working on rates by in 2009, launched it in 2013. We had a company called My Virtual Mortgage Broker, which is a, a pretty rinky dink online mortgage broker wannabe way back when. That evolved into a much more professional company in telemortgage. And so we built in telemortgage and rates by until about 2019, which in case we sold it to rates.ca group and, you know, helped them out for a few years. And then uh, we moved uh, down south here for a bit. And yeah, what am I leaving out? Canadian mortgage trends, maybe? Oh, yes. There's yeah, in between there, you took a little pit stop and created Canadian mortgage <laughs> trends. So tell me about that. Name mortgage trends. That was actually originally intended as a way to get business. And so we hope to create a blog that would rank high in Google and get leads. And it did work. And we kind of used it as a platform to build other fun stuff. And we ended up selling that in 2014 to Camp, now MPC, and spent a little more time there helping them out with it. And then, yeah, on to the rest of the stuff. So, okay, because that's where I originally met you was through Canadian Mortgage Trends. And so you sold that to MPC. And so you always had a thing for writing. I would say that was a trend. And, you know, writing is your thing, or one of your things anyway, and building businesses or building things and selling them. I'm going to go back quickly. So the trading thing, did you sell that when it was still working? Or did you sell it when you saw the writing on the wall and you realized this is a good time to get out? What stage was it at when you sold it? Yeah, our platform uh, sold it in the infancy. It really wasn't fully developed yet. And then we got into mortgages. It was just a very cost-intensive business. And so we figured we'd let someone else take a run with it. Take a run with it. Okay. And then while you were building up Canadian Mortgage Trends, you created Rates Buy. So maybe define what Rates Buy was. What was the purpose and you know the whole goal of it? Yeah, so Rates Buy was, again, a consumer-centric site. The purpose was to get leads for our mortgage business. We had telemarketers at the time, and then you know, we wanted to be vertically integrated. The competitors at the time, Rate Hub, Rate Supermarket, they were pretty expensive to generate lead business. And so we figured, you know, we got good content. We could probably rank pretty high in Google. So we built up Rates Buy. You know, we wanted to make it different. We wanted to make it objective, whereas I didn't think that the other sites were quite as objective in terms of, you know, showing the whole market. You know, we were the only site to show the whole entire market, at least including competitors, market. you know, like you're talking about, like the non-mortgage broker lenders, right? Yeah, yeah. RBC and stuff. And, you know, we created relationships with people at the banks to get inside information on their discretionary rates and stuff. We posted those. The goal was to give the consumer a really honest look at the entire rate market. Right. And so you built this up and then sold it. Like, was it getting good traffic when you sold it? Obviously, that some, it was worth something because they wouldn't buy it from you. But like, I'm curious, how did that go? Compare that to Canadian Mortgage. Canadian Mortgage Trends was a broad news-based kind of anything to do with mortgages that you talked about. How would those two compare in terms of traffic? 
would you say? Oh, they're both doing very well. You know, that's why we were bought. You know, I can't get into exact numbers, but they're doing really well. They had different models, right? Canadian Mortgage Trends is more of an industry-centric model, whereas RateSpy was more of a lead gen model, you know, a lot of consumer action on that site. And so they're kind of a little bit different. Right. Okay. And then, so what prompted you to sell? Because to me, RateSpy sounds like a perfect thing for you to build based on what I know about you anyway, and I've known you for a while. So what was the motivation to be just like, ah, I think I'm going to sell it? Well, you know, we were approached, got a fair offer, great group of people over at rates.ca that we had an opportunity to work with. You know, they're very smart at what they do. They're well capitalized. And so it was a good opportunity. So yeah, I mean, when a good opportunity comes along, you know, they don't come along every day. You know, at the time we had, you know, interest from multiple parties, but, you know, rates.ca was a great group of people. So we did the deal. Right. Okay. And then, so what are you doing now? So are you still working at rates.ca? Are you consulting? I know you write for the Globe and Mail. That's one of your things you do. What are the things you're doing? Yeah. So I do write for the Globe once a week now, and I write for mortgagelogic.news, which is, uh, it's really a site kind of similar to the CMT in that it's got, you know, certainly an industry spin, but, you know, I really try to um, generate ideas for people ideas they can use to save interest, to you know, make better financing decisions and investors and generate more yield, that kind of stuff. So because it's a closed site, it's a private membership site, you know, we can do a lot of things that we couldn't do before, say a lot of things that we couldn't say before. And so that's really my main gig right now. So I'm a member of this and your articles are excellent. I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, they're very well written. There's a reason that you're writing the Global Mail. And it seems to me like you can go out and try to find all this information and put it together, but you do a really good job of curating it and then putting it in a relatable form. I always feel like my IQ goes up. So when I read your stuff, I'm like, my IQ went up five points. And then, you know, two hours later, I'm like, dang it, it's gone. Whatever it was, that's probably the ADD, but we'll put a link in this stuff and we can talk about that a little bit. So I want to ask about what is something about mortgages that most brokers don't really understand? Because you have a very deep knowledge of not only the mortgage side, but all the inner workings behind the scenes and just some of the stuff you quote, and I'm like, I didn't know this. I didn't know these things were correlated or related. So what is something you think most brokers don't really know, but they should understand? Well, you know, something that doesn't get a lot of play in the media is with respect to amortizations. And, you know, obviously 25 years of standard amortization in Canada, we're in obviously a very inflationary environment. So you got inflation right now that's, you know, two to three points above a typical mortgage. So, there's this thing called time value of money. And the point is that if inflation's so high uh, relative to mortgage rates, why would you take today's dollars, which are valuable compared to future dollars, and make a payment on your mortgage? And so that's an important question I think not enough people ask themselves, right? Because you can pay, you know, mortgage over any number of years, you know, 25 is the standard, people go up to 30. The longer you extend that mortgage, the more you pay it down with devalued dollars. And in a high inflationary environment, that has significant impacts on your net worth long term. So, you know, whereas you might make a mortgage payment at, uh, you know, 4%, you could instead take that money and invest it in an RSP or TFSA and something that beats the rate of inflation long-term. And that's something I think more people need to think about from a retirement planning standpoint. Right. So you're basically suggesting that if we're going to be living in a future of you know, more inflation, that paying down the mortgage with future dollars is better than current dollars, which I remember once read that the way you get rid of the debt problem is it through inflation. You need to make $500,000 not be worth what it was worth 
you know, we've done it with a lot of printing of money. And I'm sure you can speak to this way better than me, but we've inflated. And now the way we kind of deal with this debt issue, what are your thoughts on that? Using inflation to make debt not as costly for the consumer, yeah. the government, for everybody. Like I'm not just talking consumers, I'm talking even the government. It also helps them too, right? Yeah, it's kind of the same concept. So, I mean, you're paying, you know, a debt with future devalued dollars. It gets cheaper. Your incomes go up over time. You know, pain relatively declines over time. So now there's some people that may have literally nothing better to invest in than their mortgage, especially depending on the interest rate. And, you know, mortgages are a great tax risk adjusted return. You don't pay tax on money you save. And, you know, it's pretty risk free to pay a mortgage instead of you know, investing in the stock market, for example. But I think if you have a long enough time horizon that you need to you know, put your money to use where it's gonna generate the highest risk-adjusted return for you. And very often that's not your mortgage payment. Right, so that's interesting. It's a very intelligent way to talk about a longer amortization. So with that thinking, would then an interest only make sense? So like if you had a better use of interest, would you call it risk-adjusted investment? Would it make more sense to have an interest-only payment and then put the money somewhere else? Or what are your thoughts on that? It potentially could. I mean, you know, usually interest-only, you're talking about HELOCs. And, you know, there's always this argument out there about, you know, from critics that people don't know how to take care of their own finances. So you can't really trust them with the interest-only products. I think that's ridiculous. I think that people are adults. I think that you have to, you know, let people make the right decisions for them. And so if we let people get an interest-only mortgage and they have better things to do with that cash flow, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So are you a fixed or variable guy? So for your own mortgage, what would you be? I know the answer, but I want to ask for my listeners' sake. Yeah, you know, a lot of times I'm a half and half guy, sit on the fence guy, a hybrid mortgage guy. Right now, though, so we're building a house and in December, we're going to need financing. And so at that time, I'm thinking the market's probably going to be, you know, 150 plus basis points higher in terms of the rates that we look at getting. So, you know, I mean, historically, it's clear cut. You know, when you have rates that go significantly above their 10-year average, there's a reversion that takes place in the not-too-distant future. And that, you know, reversion typically happens in, you know, a one- to three-year period. So I'll play the numbers. You know, we can gamble a little bit, you know. So up there, I think that, you know, floating beats fixed, certainly a five-year fixed. I mean, you know, there might be a one-year fixed-term offer at that point that's really, really good. So, we'll, you know, you evaluate everything at the time based on spreads and suitability and, you know, the customer's needs and stuff. You know, back in um, 1981, because I know we uh, can all remember back that far. I was six. Uh, I think I went to saw Star Wars. So, and I, and I was hooked ever since. So, I keep going. I don't know if Star Wars came in 1981, but. Yeah. Did your parents have a mortgage? Because if they did, you know, the odds are they had a shorter term mortgage. In fact, the one-year fix was at a point in 1981, the most popular term. They came out with variables, I want to say uh, like December 81. Don't quote me on that exact date. It was like CIBC came out with a variable rate mortgage. is like a real big thing. And like at some point, I think RBC even actually stopped selling five-year fixed mortgages. It was just an insane rate market back then. Right. And so why were people gravitated? Is it because of the inflationary market, higher rates? And so people gravitated towards shorter terms? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, like people didn't think that, you know, rates would go up 
that much. And it's you know funny, I was reading for researching an article, I was reading stories from 81, and there's a lot of pissed off people, specifically in 1980, actually, there's a lot of pissed off people that were getting advice from their bank to renew into a one-year fixed, and then rates went up another 10 points. So yeah, you got to make obviously the right decision at the right time based on the customers. You got to think about like, let's say you did have a 10% increase in rates over a year, and you have a large percentage of the population affected by that. Now it's a bit more dispersed because you have you know, it's probably more fixed than variable, I would say, in Canada. What you probably know better than me, but what are the stats on fixed versus variable for not talking mortgage broker clients, but as an aggregate Canadian borrowers? Do you know what that looks like? Yeah, overall, we're just over 50%, or at least we were based on the latest data I've seen in terms of variable. So more Okay, than- so we're actually, I would have thought fixed was slightly higher. So, so uh, yeah. So I'm talking about recent originations. So you're right, you know, fixed rates, I think they're roughly about 70% total existing debt stock. But lately there's been, as you know, been a significant shift of variable and so much of a shift that the regulators are getting a little antsy. And I think that, you know, potentially in the next month, we could see some action on it. Okay. So what are your thoughts on why the shift to variable? I have some thoughts on this, but again, I want to hear what you think. Yeah. I didn't bring you on to talk about what I think, because I know what I think. What I think is not as oh, interesting. I want to hear what you think. Maybe it'll give me a story idea. But, you know, certainly there's a lot of things going on back. You know, people thought that rates would just not go up as much. You had the Bank of Canada saying lower for longer, yada, yada. You have people that, you know, put all their stock in rate research. And so, you know, the studies from Malevsky and whatnot, suggesting that variables win, you know, up to 90% of the time based on what time periods and stuff you're looking at. And the fact that obviously the interest rate was lower and the payments were lower and, you know, uh, payment at 1.5% looked really good. And, you know, despite the fact that, you know, rates could go up, I think people in many cases, mortgage advisors made a mistake in recommending variable to certain types of borrowers. And obviously it sounds a little easy to say stuff like that in hindsight, but we all knew what part of the rate cycle we were in. And if you didn't know, you probably shouldn't be in the business. It's pretty obvious that rates were going to start ticking higher. You know, the economy is recovering. We had record stimulus. You know, we had record low rates. You don't stay at near zero on rates forever. I mean, people should have known this stuff. And I think that a lot of that, you know, 50 to 54% of people that got variables in the preceding, you know, six months, a material minority of them should not have been recommended variables. Right. Okay. So you said something about a 10 year fixed inversion. I don't know, like blah, 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 something smart. What did you mean by that? So tell me like I'm 10, because there was something you touched on. I was like, yeah. Um, What the hell did I say again? You said something about when rates get, I think it was to do with either the five-year fixed or the fixed rates invert over the 10-year fixed rate that it means something. So there was something to do with, I think, comparing the shorter term rates with the longer term and when you're making your decision on your own personal mortgage and how it's an indicator of something. What are you meaning and what is an indicator of? What do you mean by that? You might be talking about yield curve inversion. So, you know, that's been a pretty good indicator long-term about, you know, when the economy is going to pick up, uh, when the economy is going to slow down. So, you know, with all of this uh, rate tightening we're seeing now, we're going to see yield curve inversion again. We already saw it recently, depending on what uh, spreads you're looking at. And, you know, that's a hint that we're going to get a recession. And it works a lot more often than not. And so, you know, the spread between the 10-year and two-year, which is the most popular or most quoted anyway, yield curve spread is really tight. 
And so, okay, so explain to me what, what do you mean by the yield curve, the difference between the two? I think I understand, but again, let's yeah. assume people listening are a little bit slower. So it's really a yield spread. So you got, you know, a 10 year yield, which is kind of reflects the outlook for the economy longer term. Then you got the short term yields, a two year yield and the gap between those two, you know, people look at for an indication of what the market thinks is going to happen to the economy. And so when that spread is usually positive, but when that spread goes negative and it inverts, then you have a very high incidence of recession, historically speaking, within you know 12 to 24 months thereafter. So basically, is that you're saying that the rate on the two-year is higher than the 10-year? Is that what you're suggesting? Or is it or the yield? Yeah. The yield. Okay. So would it make sense then to take longer-term mortgages or going into recession? Or is it, I guess recessions often lead to rate decreases because at least yeah. my yeah, my experience has been I've you know I've only been through one that I was aware of. And so then a longer term may or may not make sense at that point, right? Because it might be better to wait and kind of see what happens. Is that what you'd suggest? Yeah, yeah. You want to ride variable rates and short-term fixed products down at that point. So, you know, when you're at the trough, getting back to the whole fixed variable discussion, when you're in the trough of a business cycle, you know, there's only one way for rates to go and that's up. And the yield curve is actually a pretty good indicator of that. And so you can use tools like that for rate or term selection. And, you know, no one's smarter than bond market and it's not easy, but you get a general sense of where we are in the cycle by looking at indicators like that. There was one famous economist who said, when I come back, I want to be the bond market because then I can scare everybody. Who was it? Did you ever heard this quote? When I come back in my next life, I want to be the bond market. I was like, that's hilarious because it's an indicator. Okay. The one thing about variable too, I think the increase in variable was the, the stress test. So it's actually easier in some cases to qualify for a variable than a fixed. And so we're actually seeing situations where people are actually going into variable because it actually qualifies them for more. So I don't think that was the intended design or purpose of the stress test. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that OSFI uh, and the other policymakers that were uh, consulted at the time made a mistake with the stress test. I think that they probably should have gauged it based on typical five-year rates, which they actually proposed at one point, and then they backtracked on it. But now we're in a situation where a lot of people who should not be getting variables are getting variables because it's the only way they can qualify. And I think that's a mistake. It's a risk. I think that, you know, OSPI realizes the main mistake. And so I do think that they're going to uh, do something about it in the not too distant future. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Let's switch from interest rates to housing and supply. So do you think that the recent, you know, increase in house prices is because of low rates? Is it because of supply? Is it like, what's the dynamic there? And I'm just interested in how you examine or analyze that stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors. Well, you know, one that doesn't get talked about enough is an obvious one, incomes. Incomes rise, you know, typically, you know, let's call it 3%, give or take a year. And that lets you buy more house. Obviously, low rates are a big factor you know, one of the biggest factors. And certainly immigration, you know, household formation, you know, we're rank up there pretty high and, uh, you know, G7, G20 countries in terms of population growth. And we don't rank as but it's high. Not, it's not from children, it's from immigration though, right? Most, 
Yeah. And so we just don't have enough housing units to house all of those people economically. And so you get, you know, bidding wars. And what happens is, you know, these immigrants generally congregate in high population areas where the jobs are and whatnot. And, you know, that puts more stress on a smaller number of areas. Right. Okay. So when we were chatting before we did this, I said to you, hey, how do you solve the supply problem? Because I think there's a couple, there's the time it takes to get permits approved. So there's a delay. There's a, a lot of jurisdictions now. There's a lot of fees involved in getting things approved because, hey, I don't have to raise taxes in my city. I can just tax all the development that's going on. So there's that that happens. And then the third part of that is that it's very difficult to even get contractors. We've got a pool thing that we're fixing right now, and it is taking forever. Yeah, it seems very challenging to find trade. So maybe share some of your thoughts on that because you had an idea that I thought I've never heard somebody say this before, and I thought it was pretty ingenious. So let's chat about that. Yeah, it's a great time to be in the trade business, I'll tell you. That's some place where, uh, you know, supply of trades hasn't caught up to demand for a long time, you know, even before the pandemic. So if you're building anything with a house, you know exactly how expensive things are getting. But anyway, back to your question. So what do you do to solve this supply problem? Obviously, the government's throwing a lot of money at the problem. They're talking about it a lot, which is good because you get multiple levels of government now actually starting to do something or starting to think about doing something. I think long-term though, the obvious answers are things like densification, right? And you know, a lot of people don't want densification in their backyards, but that's certainly where we have to go in the larger urban areas. You know, what you and I were talking about was transportation. So in Alberta, they got an interesting project between Edmonton and Calgary that they're uh, hoping to build ultra, ultra high speed transit. So you can get from Calgary to Edmonton in 45 minutes. How fast uh, is that going? Like how, how, that? Fa- how fast is that when you say ultra high speed? Oh, like, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers an hour, I believe. So it's like you a plane basically attached to the ground. It's a plane. I wonder if you get sick if you're sitting that close. I'd be interested. I've never ridden on a high speed train. Maybe you have in Europe somewhere, but... I wonder if I'd actually get ill looking out the window, just like watching everything rip by. Yeah, it might be in a tube. I don't know. I saw something from uh, Elon Musk and they didn't have windows. I don't know. Maybe that's so people don't throw up on the other passengers. Yeah, because sure. seriously, probably your brain would be like, well, what is going on here? But sorry, I keep going with this, you know, high speed train idea. Yeah, Hyperloop. So if you built something like that, you know, and you had, say, a stop in Red Deer, Alberta, which is, you know, roughly in the middle, I think. Think about what that would do. So in Red Deer, you know, your average house price is about 348000 Calgary now, I think you're like 520 ish or so. So you save, you know, 172 grand if you don't mind living in Red Deer. Problem is Red Deer is far away. But if you can get to Red Deer in, you know, 20 minutes, maybe that changes your mind. There's a right. lot more low-cost land in Red Deer than there is in central Calgary. And so this concept, you know, if it played out in enough places in the country, you know, especially with worker mobility now, right, as people can move to different places where the housing is cheaper and, you know, and take advantage of that. So high-speed transit, I think, is a very important answer for a material, uh, you know, segment of the market. You know, go from Windsor to Toronto. If you could do that in, you know, 35, 40 minutes, you know, with a couple stops along the way, wherever those stops are, you know, you build there and you have densification around those transportation hubs. And, you know, to the extent that they have significantly lower land costs, you know, you can solve a lot of problems that way. Now, it's not cheap to build uh, ultra high speed transit. So you have to obviously finance it properly and whatnot. But I think the cost of not doing something about housing is a hell of a lot more 
than you know the cost of one-time large investment in transit. Right, that's interesting. I just did a quick Google search of Hyperloop while you were chatting, and it looks like it's a tube. And it's probably for that very reason that it's actually a train inside a tube. It's not like you wouldn't even see outdoors. You know, you'd feel movement, but your brain wouldn't register how fast you really were going. Also, what if you hit like a burp? My brain starts thinking all the things, problems that you could have. But if you had something moving that fast, that low to the ground, you need to protect it from anything. A rock, like some kid throws a rock up on that thing. And, you know, you could literally, you'd have to have protection for it. So, okay, problem solved. We can move on from that. So I think that's an interesting way to think about solving. You can't create more land. And so could you create access to more land through use of technology, through use of transportation? I think that's a very novel idea in terms of solving some of these, you know, problems. I get people from, you know, low cost jurisdictions to where the employment is. And fortunately, one positive, I think, with COVID was that it taught people that you can actually be productive in some cases, not all cases, and work from home, work remotely. And that allows more people to live away from big centers like Toronto. And that, you know, is going to have a long term, because short term, you have a very limited supply of housing in these areas that people are moving to far away. But long term, to the extent, again, that there's enough available building land, which there is relative to like a place like Toronto or Vancouver, that is a solution as well. Right. That's interesting. Okay. So where do you see rates in the next 12 to 24 months? Oh, man, that's a tough one, even for a rate guy like me. You know, certainly the market, which I think is probably knows as much about rate direction as anyone, you know, is pricing in, you know, 325 basis points now on an overnight rate by the end of this year. And that's gone up one or two hikes in the recent past year. So the market's getting a little concerned that the bank account is too far behind. And the Bank of Canada today, we saw Macklin today talking about maybe they have to go over 50 basis points. And it wasn't that long ago where they're kind of saying, hey, 50 is probably, you know, the most you should well, It used to be a quarter was pretty much standard. And then once in a while, it'd be 50. And so if 50 is the new 25, is 100 the new 50, you know, like, or 75 or something. Well, let's hope it doesn't get to that point because if 100 is the you know new 50 and 50 is the new 25, that means we got a serious problem that the market's not pricing in right now with inflation. And I think we're facing you know some tough months ahead. So you know you might have remembered in the media they're talking about base effects and how you know base effects because we had high inflation a year ago is going to temper inflation this year. Well, it turns out that that's mostly a U.S. thing. It's more of a U.S. thing than it is in Canada. And so we have a number of months where the comparables on inflation are actually pretty easy to beat, which means that inflation can more easily beat expectations, can be higher, other things equal. And so I think that that and the fact that oil is going to the moon is going to lead to some very disturbing inflation surprises here in the next little while. Right. So what do you watch? So you talk about the market's pricing. And so if I'm the average mortgage broker, give me a couple of the key things that you think I should keep an eye on that are my like dash light in the car, things that I should know about. Because I think, again, most mortgage brokers don't know or follow that stuff that well. Yeah. So in terms of rate direction, I post this stuff in Mortgage Logic every week. And the big ones are things like the OIS expectations, what's the bond market is pricing in. OIS stands for overnight index swap. Okay, I was about to ask you, yeah, please tell me like I'm 10. Just pretend you're talking to a 10-year-old kid who's like, please, Rob, tell me what this is. 
get yeah. overnight inflation. What did you call it? Overnight. Overnight. Yeah, index swap. So it's basically a derivative that people use for a bunch of different reasons. One of the reasons is uh, to bet on the direction of future interest rates. And so OIS is something that a lot of people watch, a lot of people quote. And so OIS can go out you know, pretty far. So you can get a pretty good sense of what the market thinks rates are going to do. You can also use things like bond forwards and you know futures and other stuff. The problem is that this stuff is not easy to get your hands on. There's no real free source of this information. So you know, I use a Reuters terminal to get the data and I try to share it with people. And that's probably, if you want indicator where rates are going to go, you know, you can look at a lot of stuff. You can look at, you know, inflation, uh, unemployment and try to, you know, decipher where we're at in the economy. But the bond market takes all that stuff and puts it into one number. Okay. So that's the kind of the OIS, something that you'd watch. Is this something you talk about in your mortgage logic newsletter service that you provide? Is that something that you touch on? Every week. Yep. Every week. Okay. And so I got two more questions to do with this. So if you're an active mortgage broker today and you're seeing the situation, how would this influence your decision? So you're Rob, the mortgage broker, you got your mortgage business, you know, whatever, you know, 25, hundred million, whatever that number is, what kind of decisions are you thinking about making given the current you know, economic things that you're seeing? So it all starts with the borrower. I mean, nothing's more important than the borrower situation, right? Their financial situation, their outlook, their five-year plan, all that good stuff. You know, no one can predict interest rates. We might think rates are going to, you know, three and a quarter by the end of this year. Turns out they go to four and a half or, you know, they top out another, you know, 100, 125 basis points more. So you can't get too hung up on the rate outlook. But, you know, you can use the rate outlook to manage risk. You know, the multi-trillion dollar bond market is telling you that we're facing 200 basis points uh, higher rates, potentially, you got to take that into consideration, particularly for borrowers who have higher, you know, risk factors, right? So, you know, term selection takes all kinds of stuff into account, the spread between rates, right? And then obviously, you know, we get into suitability and actual product differences themselves. You know, the total borrowing cost is what matters, right? Over the time frame where the borrower needs the financing. And so obviously there's a lot of things that can cost you money with the mortgage after closing and you got to take those into account too. So you've done lots more probably analysis on interest rates than most anybody I know. And I have heard that the variable rate, maybe it was the prime rate has outperformed the fixed over the long term most of the time. Is that true? And if it isn't, what is true? And then if it is, how often? That's like three questions. So I guess the first question is, is it true that even though in the current environment, it, obviously a variable rate may not make a lot of sense, but if you look historically, like since, you know, maybe if you look back to 1980 or whatever your time frame is, what was the better choice for the average person? Yeah. So actually, you know, if you take market expectations, you put them, I have a rate simulator. I do this like every day. So you take market expectations, you put them in this five-year rate simulator and you compare different terms. And if you do that and you compare, you know, today's variable to a five-year fix, the variable is actually going to win. Assuming that we hold to historical norms that, you know, when the Bank of Canada gets crazy hiking rates that eventually, you know, rates revert to the mean, you make those basic assumptions, excuse me, then variable actually performs pretty well. Most of the time that works. You know, you look back way back in history, I got mortgage rate data back to 1951. You look way back in history and that works almost all the time. But except 
when it doesn't. <laughs> Except when it doesn't. So, you know, you, there's some periods in the 70s where, you know, if you had blindly listened to research and gone variable, 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 you would have had a hell of a lot of unpleasantness in, you know, the 77 to 82 time period, for example. So, you know, fixed actually does outperform. People, you know, even 90% variable weights, yada, yada. First of all, that number heavily depends on the time period you look at. A lot of people can't get the data all the way back to 51. It depends on the rate spreads, you assume. A lot of people don't know what the typical rate spreads were. They don't know what discounting was on a year-by-year basis going way back in history. So you got to use actual data that was available at the time. But there's times when five-year fix actually went. And typically, it's the same type of scenario. You know, you have a very tight spread between fixed and variable. You're at the bottom of a rate cycle. You've had significant rate cutting. Now things are starting to really heat up in the economy. You know, unemployment's diving. You know, capacity utilization, you know, maxed out. Output gap, you know, closing. You know, all the positives happening. And that's when, you know, fixed really prevails. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that got, you know, one and a half percent or less five-year fixed money at the bottom who are, you know, thanking their lucky souls they did. I could be wrong, don't quote me. I think guys like Butler were even quoting, uh, you know, 1.25%. He might've had the lowest tick of all time on uh, five-year fixed rates. Wow, that's crazy. Okay. And then if you're a borrower, I guess you kind of touched on this, but basically you're going to need to be advised. You said you have a rate simulator. So is that a tool that was part of your brokerage? Is that a tool that you'd ever make available to mortgage brokers at like, as a fee or something? Have you ever thought about that? Like, I'm just curious because that might make for some interesting conversations if I'm a mortgage consultant, mortgage agent, and I can show them scenarios, then it changes the discussion, right? Is that what you guys used yeah. to do when you sold mortgages? So uh, I developed a rate simulator, I want to say like 10 years ago, just on my own personally. And I used it for a lot of time. I've refined it a lot over the years. Probably the closest thing you could find is at RateSpot. They have this calculator. It's like an amortization scenario calculator. It essentially performs the same thing. I have a version that does extra stuff. It's just a little easier to use, but you know, pretty much do the same thing. So you put your variable rate, for example, you put your fixed rate, you make some assumptions about what rates are going to do in the next five years, and then it computes your total borrowing cost in each case, and you can compare it over a five-year span. So do you think there's a scenario? So the typically, you know, government goes or the bank can is like, oh, crap, we got to raise rates to, you know, fight inflation. Is there a scenario where they don't cut rates, like where the inflation is actually a bigger risk than recession? Or has that ever happened in another country? Is like, you know, because we can't just these are kind of things that are not often events. So it's always useful to even look broader than just in Canada, but have you seen a scenario where they're like, too bad we're not cutting rates because inflation is a bigger risk to the economy than recession, or is always follow that, you know, slowing down the economy leads to them cutting rates? It doesn't usually work that way. So the biggest risk is inflation. You let inflation get out of control and really, really bad things happen with the economy. You have high unemployment, you have people on a fixed income that can't afford to live. You have really, really bad things. You know, you have businesses shrinking investment. There's just really, really bad things that happen. So that is why we have a 2% inflation target. And, you know, the Bank of Canada knows full well that, you know, if they have to uh, panic hike rates to bring inflation back to target, most likely better than 50% chance probability they're going to you know, trigger a recession. That's not going to stop them from hiking rates. They're going to keep hiking rates until they see you know, core inflation tick down a bit 
you know, such that their 12 to 18 month outlook is inflation uh, getting back to target. And, you know, they've been wrong in inflation so much that, you know, the market has lost faith in their projections. Bank of Canada itself, I think, would admit that they've lost faith in their projections. And so they're going to wait, you know, to see inflation actually significantly retrace, I think, before they call it quits on rate hikes. Right. So inflation, if the cost of things go up, cost of goods, if my can't buy as many things, that means it's going to obviously affect the economy. Is that how this relates? So let's say I have so much expendable income, like my gas prices have gone like crazy. I bought a truck just recently. So awesome for gas, you know, things like just drinks gas. It burns gas even when it's not on. It's just like, I'm going to burn some gas here. So if the average person has less money in their wallet at the end of the month because of fuel prices, because of increasing food and costs, it's got to mean they're going to spend less money in other areas, which then is that what leads into a recessionary environment where, hey, we're not going to the restaurant. We're not doing these things that we are moving the economy. People aren't investing in the economy. They're a little bit more nervous. Yeah, explain to me how those things relate in a simple way, as simple as possible. Yeah, I mean, you can buy fewer units of different stuff if the price per unit is high right, or higher. So that has a negative impact on the market or on the economy rather. And, you know, that's what happens when you raise interest rates, make it really expensive, you know, to borrow to buy houses and durable goods and stuff like that. So again, what is your thoughts on why do we have such low, like, why can't you find workers for anything? Every business seems to have like, we need workers, everybody needs workers. What's caused that? Like, is it that people don't want to work? Is it that there's just not enough of them? Like, I'm curious what your thoughts are in the stuff that you've read and researched. Yeah, first of all, the economy is strong. So when the economy is strong, you have a lot of job opportunities. We have record low unemployment right now. We have folks that, to the extent that they work from home, it's easier to go from job A to job B. You have a lot of competition for workers. You know, people, when you're unhappy with your job, then, you know, you're still a little scared about changing jobs. You know, a lot of people don't like change. They don't know how, you know, if they're going to get fired after three months or whatever, but it's easier now. There's less risk now to switch jobs. And so you have more switching. And so you don't have people staying on the job as long. Right. So if people have more options, then they'll exercise those options. But so I feel like if we go into a recession, people are going to be spending less money, which means there's going to be less hiring, which means the job market will get maybe a little bit more, it'll be a little easier to find help if you need it. So I don't know. This is all extremely interesting stuff. Okay, so this is just type of the iceberg if you guys are listening. Like, and I'm not even feel like I'm doing a good job. I'm probably not the best guy to interview you because I don't think I can ask smart enough questions, but- You're asking um, great questions, keep them coming. But where can people get like this mortgagelogic.news? Where can they get set up on that? How does that work? If they're like, hey, I wanna be able to have intelligent conversations with my clients. And you're taking it through the lens of a you know mortgage broker. Ex, I don't know if you're still mortgage brokering, but you know as a guy who actually understands our industry. And where can they find that? Well, I created the name of the company based on the website, so hopefully people don't forget it. MortgageLogic.news. That's where you go and sign up free trial. Or there's not a free trial actually because of our system review. It's too difficult. But if you you know you try it, you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. But we haven't had many people canceling. Thank God. So that's where you go. So, okay, what's next for you? So this is one of the things you're doing because you're an innovative guy. What else is next for Rob that you're scheming about or dreaming and scheming about? Scheming about. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing in your evil lair? You know, cooking up your... So if you like fantasy football, I got dfshub.com launch in September 1st. That's fun. You play any, uh, do any NFL? Uh, I love football, but I don't never do fantasy. I don't like my son could do, he knows the players. He's like, Hey dad, this guy got arrested for this. And he's, I'm yeah. like, I don't understand it. Like he knows and this is his stats. And 
from a very novice understanding of it. But so fantasy football is the thing you're into? Yeah. So I had a Bloomberg terminal and I got this great idea to make kind of a Bloomberg terminal for NFL fantasy data. So in other words, one place where you go and get all this data. I got, you know, 4,500 news sources and, you know, stats up the game nearing. I didn't realize how difficult it would be to actually build this thing. It's taken like about two years longer than I thought it would build. But anyway, yeah, so that's kind of like a hobby slash job. Right. I, tell Melanie, I tell Melanie it's a job. Yeah, so she's like, why are you wasting money on this? I gotta keep <laughs> do you have somebody building it for you? I can't imagine you're actually doing the coding. Like you're probably more of the, or who's building it for you? No, a lot of uh, smarter people are doing the coding than me, but uh, yeah. So basically it's because that's kind of what you do with rates by you went out and aggregated data from a whole bunch of places and then consolidated it. And so in a way you're just taking that same model and applying it to a totally different, there's probably a ton of people that actually pay for that because they just want to win and beat their buddies in, you know. I hope so. The, yeah. So when is that coming out in January, you said? September 1st. September 1st. Okay, cool, man. Well, hey, Rob, always good to chat with you, man. Thanks for your conversation. And guys, go check out his newsletter. It will make you smarter and make you more intelligent to your clients. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Hey, so hopefully you found that conversation interesting. I know I did. I love chatting with Rob. I haven't talked to him in a long time. I was actually at his company many, many years ago for a brief period of time, and I was actually an agent under him. Well, I met him through Canadian Mortgage Trends, but in any case, I encourage you to go check out mortgagelogic.news if you want to increase your mortgage IQ. And in this upcoming segment, I talked to Ben about five reasons that a reverse mortgage may be declined. Ben, welcome back to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. So, hey, today we're going to talk about five reasons why you may decline a file for a reverse mortgage because yeah. not everybody's a fit. And so it's good for people to understand how that works. So why don't we jump into that? Yeah, we've talked a lot about, you know, who does qualify for a reverse mortgage, but we haven't really talked about who doesn't. So I uh, figured we jump into that. So the first group of people that we will have to decline is people that just simply don't qualify. And that is, you know, one of the kind of really hard stops is you need to be 55 plus and 100 percent of title holders on the home to be 55 plus. So sometimes we have cases where one of the spouses is over 55, you know, one of the spouses is under 55. Unfortunately, we can't do the deal in that case. Right. And that's just a, nothing you can do with that. So I think yeah. you're joking, but you're saying you'll see like a 79-year-old male with a 49-year-old wife. And it's like, good for you, but you're not getting a reverse mortgage. So Yeah, we've had a couple of cases like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's one. Not all title holders are 55 plus. So what's another reason you made to plan a file? Yeah. So the second reason would be too much existing mortgage. Okay. So obviously a nuance of our product is that the balance grows over time instead of declines like a traditional mortgage, right? So the most that we could put on, you know, in first position is 55%. And then we allow a second mortgage up to 65% LTV. And that's common in, in the reverse mortgage industry. But if that 65% LTV doesn't cover, you know, the existing secure debt they have on the home, it's going to be tough for reverse mortgage to be the solution for them. Right. Okay. So 55 plus 65% loan to value, what would be that another reason you may not do a file? So very low or no qualifying income and very little net proceeds. So, you know, we aren't really fussed about income. We don't care about income as much as you would for a traditional mortgage because we're not taking on credit risk. We're not relying on a customer to pay down the mortgage over time. But we do need to be comfortable that customers can pay their property taxes, their home insurance, keep their home in good repair, and then have enough left over after all that to live through their you know, expected occupancy term. So if they don't have enough income for that, and if they're not getting enough net proceeds from us that we think that they could use that to support their life over the life of the mortgage, then a reverse mortgage, again, might not be the solution for them. 
right? So it's not like a hard and fast GDS, TDS thing. It's more of a, exactly, hey, yeah. you don't want to put them in a situation where they're just delaying. Maybe yeah, having we're trying to, to find sustainable solutions. Yeah, where they're going to have to downsize in 12 months because even the taxes and stuff is too much for them. Okay, so yeah. not all title holders, 55, 65% loan to value. If they have, you know, very low income and can't support the property, basically, what's another reason that you guys may decline a file? Yeah, so uh, cases where the property is not in good repair, right? We don't take credit risk, right? Because we're not relying on customers to pay down the mortgage. The risk we do take is longevity risk and property risk, right? So longevity risk is basically the risk that the customer lives for 50 years and stays in the home for 50 years and the mortgage balance well exceeds the value of the home over time. You know, that risk we try to mitigate with, you know, having LTV that's based on age and whatnot. But in terms of property risk, we're really relying on the borrower to maintain the property, maintain the value of the security, so if we do a full appraisal on a home and it's looking like that home is not being kept in good order, we have declined files on that basis. Right. Yeah. And if they're not taking care of it well, if they can't, maybe it's a, not a choice thing, but they're not able to take care of it well now. Typically, it's not going to get easier as they get older. It's not going to get better. It's not going to get better. They're not going to be all of a sudden wake up at 75 and be like, I'm going to take care of my property. Like, it's just not happening. Okay. So what will be another reason you guys may have to decline a file? Yeah. So the last reason that we will decline files is when we see red flags around a customer's capacity or willingness to pay their property taxes and insurance. Okay. Now we see a lot of cases where customers might be in arrears on their property taxes. And we'll look at the situation in that case, right? And we'll see somebody that's in 24, 36 months arrears on their property taxes. And if we see that, okay, they have an existing mortgage in place and that's eating up most of their cash. So they've got a bunch of unsecured debts in place. They've got very little cash left over after all that to service their property taxes. And we know that when we put the reverse mortgage in place and get rid of all those payments, that they're going to be in a much better position to sustain those obligations over time. We'll do that deal, you know, every day. But then if we look at a situation where there's no real good explanation as to why they're in 24, 36 months arrears in their property taxes, and it doesn't look like, you know, the reverse mortgage is going to fundamentally change their financial position, that'll likely be a decline for us. Right. Okay. So just an ability not to pay the property taxes. This may be a broad question, but what percent of files do you think would fall into one of those that you guys would see? And it may be a couple of things. It may be that if the broker is bringing you a file, they didn't know, but how often are you seeing this stuff come up? Yeah, I would say it's rare. You know, it's definitely, you know, a significant minority of deals. You know, certainly most deals that come to us, especially through brokers, most of the brokers that we deal with have started to get a grasp around this stuff. But, you know, especially through our direct-to-consumer channel, uh, sometimes we'll get customers that don't fit in the box here. Right. Okay. So yeah, if a broker is listening to this, if you've got experience, you should be able to sort of stick handle this a bit. But if you're not sure, don't say no, unless they talk to you first, I guess. I'm not saying let you guys have a look at it because you may see something they don't. And so yeah, definitely. don't filter. Don't filter. Definitely. Okay. So yeah, let's recap that. So five reasons that you may have to decline a reverse mortgage. Yeah. So all title holders, not 55 plus, too much existing mortgage, very low or no qualifying income and low net proceeds. Cases where the property is not in good repair, maintenance issues there, and then kind of red flags around you know, a customer's capacity or willingness to maintain their property obligations like property taxes and home insurance and maintenance over time. Those are really the kind of the five reasons why a deal will be tricky for us. If it's not going to fly, that'll be one of those reasons. And so if you guys are yeah. listening to this and you're like, hey, I got a client that might be a good fit, reach out to Ben and his team. I know your team has been expanding. You guys have been growing. You got into BC recently. And so go to bloomfin.ca and uh, Ben and his team will help you. And you guys really, you make it easy. Like you literally, you can take care of even, you know, communicating it with the client and everything. And so you really do make it easy for brokers to be able to, you know, provide this option for clients. So thanks, Ben. Thanks, Scott. 
All right. Thanks again for having to listen to this episode with Rob and Ben. Hopefully you got some ideas to improve your mortgage business. A couple quick things. If you're looking for more ways to improve your business, go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. You can set up a free power search account where you can literally keyword search all the past episodes, every single one. And you can jump right to the minute that something's mentioned, whether it's first time buyer, financial advisor, accountant, sales scripts, any of those words, it'll bring you to them. And you not only it brings you to that exact spot, it also has the text transcribed. So you can actually read it as well as listen to it. So check it out. It's totally free at ilovemortgagebrokering.com. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.